Well, we finally crossed the line into Hebrews chapter 12. And it is a red letter date because I don't think we ever spent so long in one chapter, but it was a great chapter. I want to open the illustration. Some of you may remember the old movie, the 1981 classic Chariots of Fire. Relates the true story of the Scottish Christian runner, Eric Little, and his competitor, though on the same team, uh, Abraham, Harold Abrahams. And you get to see these two men's lives parallel one another and the different things that drive them. As you know, Eric Little was driven by a passion for God's glory. He was famous for the quote of, When I run, I feel his pleasure. And then, of course, you have Harold Abrahams, who was also English, but was an ethnic Jew and felt that he was always having to overcome a certain measure of discrimination. So he was driven by what he felt was um, inconsistencies, unfairness. And uh, these interactions throughout the movie have a profound application for actually running the Christian life. At one point, Harold Abrahams, who's an amazing talent, just couldn't get to the next level, and he sought out a famous coach, a man named Sam Musabini. He sat down with Sam, and he said, you know, I, I want you to coach me. And uh, Coach Musabini said, well, let me watch you first, and then I'll determine. Sure enough, he watched him for a few weeks and came back and said, all right, I'll coach you. And I believe, quote, I can get two more yards out of you, but it's going to take shaping. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews is doing here, the preacher. He's a spiritual coach, and he's been studying this little church. He knows where they are at. He knows their weaknesses, and in fact, he knows their tendencies to quit. He understands that mindset and is fearful for them. He knows they can finish. If their faith is real, they can continue. They can endure, but it's going to take some shaping. And this text, which is right on the heels of so many faithful illustrations and faithful models throughout the Old Testament, is the culmination of who we are to model in running the race with endurance, our Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, will they, or better yet, will we listen to our coach's instruction? Would you pray with me? We'll look at the text together. Gracious Father, what a delight it is to be with our church family this morning, to submit our wills and our minds to the Word of God, knowing that it is without error, that it is the very truth, that it is sufficient for life and godliness. We need this feeding this morning, Lord. We need to understand. We need our faith strengthened. And we need to be prepared for what the future holds. As we mentioned last week, 2 Timothy 3.12 makes it clear that indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We have seen this nation uh, start to embrace evil and claim that it is good. We have seen evangelicalism aligned. Churches take a back seat to issues of safety, power struggles. The gospel is mocked. And Lord, we do not put our hope in what this country will bring, but we put our hope that Christ is building His kingdom one soul at a time. 
You, by Your grace, have divinely chosen us to live at this time in history. And we have experienced that which very few have throughout the ages. A time of peace. A time of freedom. Freedom of speech. Freedom of religion. Freedom to worship. Freedom to share the Gospel. And it seems that that window is closing inch by inch and as the years go by, foot by foot. And so, Father, I pray that you would prepare us through this text that this church, this local body of believers, Metro Bible Church, would remain faithful, that we would endure well, that we would run with endurance this race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, We have a spiritual coach this morning in this preacher to the Hebrews. He's going to help us, not just inspire us, but he's going to shape us so that we will be able to remain faithful. And so I pray that you would take all that we've learned in chapter 11 and you would bring it to the very pinnacle, the very culmination as we look at the model in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that we would fix our eyes upon him. Father, I pray especially today though, for those who have yet to repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ. I pray for those who are lost, who stand under condemnation, as we all did, that we have earned a paycheck of death. But our Lord Jesus Christ took that penalty, absorbed the just wrath of God on the cross, and satisfied, taking our judgment. Mercy was extended, and all we have to do is to repent of our sin, turn from sin and self-worship, and place our faith in Jesus Christ. For those of us who are believers, who have committed, help us to stay the course by the power of your Holy Spirit, through the strengthening of our faith by the Word of God. And may you be given all the glory for it, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you'll think about it this way, we've walked through this hall of faith, and if you've ever been through an old cathedral, and you've seen either in stained glass or pictures on the wall, pictures of the faithful saints of the past, at the end of this long hall, up near where the pulpit would be, is our Lord Jesus Christ. The only one, in fact, who is beyond a model or an illustration, but is God of very God and deserves worship. And it is fitting that the preacher culminates with this. And in fact, you kind of have to get out of our our 21st century mindset and and almost scratch out the the chapter 12 number there. Because there, there is no chapter break in the original autographs. And so this goes from... Verse 40, because God had provided something better for us under the new covenant that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Old Testament saints. And then he transitions to the model of endurance. The very picture of faithfulness. The one who endured more than we have ever or will ever endured and yet remained faithful. And He is not only our example, but He is the very enabler, the one who will carry us till the end. And it's almost a wake-up call. If they haven't listened up until now, now they need to be awake. Now they need to give their attention to this. 
He gets very personal with the charge to endure, to press on, to stay the course. And he does so with an illustration that they are all too familiar with. Keep in mind, the whole of the the world in the ancient Near East was Hellenized. That means it was greatly influenced by Greek culture. And of course, what's going on in China right now? The Olympics. And so they knew well the Olympics, which took place in the town of Olympia. They also knew about the Isthmian Games, which took place in Corinth. They knew that the singular biggest event was the foot race, was running. That's what people got the most excited about. Everyone knew about it. Paul talks about it throughout the, Old Te- throughout the New Testament. And he's going to draw upon this as a metaphor for enduring persecution in the Christian life. If you'll remember the book of Hebrews, or if you're, you're visiting with us today, the book of Hebrews is written to a small church outside of Palestine, most likely in Rome. It's made up of Jewish converts, and they're enduring a lot of pressure, both peer pressure and persecution. They're feeling the heat from their, their family and friends that are saying, come back to Judaism. You're, you're taking this Jesus thing too seriously. Come back to the old ways. Don't you miss the festivals, the synagogue. Don't you miss the, 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 the rules and the laws. Don't you miss community. Don't you miss the Jewish quarter. And they're starting to feel heavy pressure. And we also know there's going to be secular pressure coming. Secular pressure in the form of physical abuse, torture. We know that Nero is now reigning. It's AD 64. And it's going to get tough. And so these bookends of pressure are coming, and they're starting to loosen their moorings. They're no longer holding fast to the anchor of their soul. They've quit coming to church on Sunday. They've quit witnessing. They've metaphorically stuck their fingers in their ears. They don't want to know too much more about doctrine because it's going to hold them accountable. Maybe if I just blend in, it'll go away. But what has been our constant theme throughout Hebrews? There's no treading water in the Christian life, is there? Drifting, what? Has a destination. We are saved by grace through faith, not as a result of works. But the faith that saves us is the faith that works and endures till the end. Those who drift away and finally drift away were never really saved. And the preacher's not standing in judgment over their spiritual estate. He's like the good coach saying, you say you're a believer? I believe it. But you know what? I'm seeing you drifting away. I'm I'm seeing that you've lost your moorings. So he constantly says, draw near. Hold fast. Stay the course. Endure. Because if you don't, it will prove that your faith was not genuine. The interesting thing about this is that out of all the examples of a genuine working faith, all of the Old Testament examples, Abel, Abraham, and, uh, and, and Samson, and Jephthah, and Samuel, out of all of them, he ends with the ultimate example, Jesus Christ. But the irony here is Jesus Christ is the very example that they're thinking of kicking to the curb to minimize persecution. This preacher knows what he's doing. They're anticipating one after another after another, and then he brings them 
Jesus Christ, the ultimate example. And it's almost like they're going, ah, did you really? Did you? He puts him front and center. The one that will help you endure the persecution is also the one for which you are receiving the persecution. But he's also the one that has brought you salvation. If you kick him to the curb, there is no hope. So we will learn how to endure in the only race that counts today. If last week was don't quit, we kind of heard that don't quit. This week is you can do this. You can do this. It's going to take some shaping, but you can do this. Three points will guide our time. I would encourage you to to take notes. Number one, rid yourself of all encumbrances. Rid yourself of all encumbrances. Number two, run with Christ-focused endurance. With Christ-focused endurance. And then three, I'm going to use an old word here, and I'll explain why in a bit. Renumerate on Christ's example. Renumerate on Christ's example. Don't ask me how to spell it. All right, let's look at the first one. Rid yourself of all encumbrances. Let's look at our text. Verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. So he paints this picture of a runner entering the stadium. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, they're in the stands. Now, these are not live spectators looking down on us. These aren't Old Testament saints watching what we're doing right now. No, they're, they're witnesses to God of the truth. But it's like in standing in the footsteps of those who have gone before us, since we have such a great cloud of people who were faithful, I want you to also lay aside every encumbrance. Now, what's interesting here, the preacher does something. He uses this term witnesses again. It's the same noun form of the verb gained approval that we saw before. Remember, those who gained approval, those who were a witness, those who testified to the faith. It's that word martus, where we get martyr. So there's a connection here. Martyr didn't come to mean someone who died for their faith until later. It originally meant a witness, a witness of the truth. What was Stephen before he was stoned? Read his sermon. It's outstanding, chock full of truth, and he stands and delivers. He's not a martyr because he necessarily died. He's a martyr because he was a witness to the truth, and they killed him for it. And by the way, who held their coats? Saul who became Paul, who talks about running the race to the end. So this is a pregame pep talk. You might think about it this way. If you've ever been to Cowboy Stadium, you'll notice the ring of honor emblazed around the stadium. And you see names that I grew up with, you know, Roger Staubach, Drew Pearson, Tony Dorsett, even older guys like Dandy Don Meredith, all right? These are guys that actually went to the Super Bowl instead of just watched it on TV, you know? These are the real heroes. But don't you imagine that that 
psychs up the rookies. You know, the guys that finally get to don the jersey, the guys that finally make it, you know, to second string and get to play, you know, the end of the third quarter when we're ahead by 20 points, and they walk out there, and the first thing they see is, is not the score, uh, you know, it's not the field, it's the names that have gone before them. The, the guys that played sometimes both offense and defense the guys that played with injuries, the guys that played for the love of the game, not for the signing bonus. And don't you imagine that it inspires them? It motivates them. Well, that's what he's doing here. He has motivated them to endure. But that's not nearly enough, is it? We need more than motivation. Like, like Coach Musabini said, it's going to take some shaping. If I'm going to change, what you're doing is not enough. We might say it this way. Metro Bible, I, I hope that we really genuinely believe uh, that our Lord Jesus Christ died, rose again on the cross, that we placed our faith and trust in Him, that we study the Word daily. I hope all that's true. I hope that we're ready to endure. But we would be naive to think that we're really ready, Right? So though we may not be drifting like this first century church, we need some shaping to endure what is ahead because we haven't even begun to taste persecution. So I want to take what this coach has for us and, and I want to apply it. Just, just to give you a personal example, as I've been studying this, it's very hard to come preach this text when you're failing in this area. And I've just been taken out at the knees lately through some, some slander and malignment of my reputation outside this church. You guys wouldn't be aware of it, but it's just, I've been talking to Joy, and I'm like, I'm amazed at how this is just knocking me out, knocking the, the wind out of my sails. Why is this bothering me so much? It's, it's nothing. There, there, there's words. It's it's hardly anything. How can I preach about enduring to the end when I know that there's physical torture that happened to these people? And I'm letting this bother me. And so the answer was, I've got to really, really submit myself to this text and take the shaping here so that I'm more prepared. And so he says, let's, let's look at the changes we need to make. Verse 1 again, let us also... Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin. I like the way the net Bible renders it. Get rid of the weight. Plain speak, isn't it? Get rid of the weight. There's two types of weights here. Encumbrance and sin. Now that's done specifically. Because not every weight is bad. But not everything is helpful either. So let's look at that word encumbrance. There's nothing against the rules about me running in a suit and overcoat, right? I like my wingtips. I like my cowboy boots. These are tough. I can do it, right? How efficient, though, am I going to be? How fast am I going to be carrying all that extra weight and, and, and soles with heels and things like that? It makes sense. You, you strip down. You shed the weight. In the first century... Runners ran naked. 
But even the neutrals can entangle us, right? Even the neutrals can be more than just weight. They can trip us up. I don't know what your particular encumbrance may be, but let's assume that it's not a bad thing. It's just a thing. Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's hobbies. Maybe it's putting your kid in every activity out there so that they're the best. But even the good things can distract from the best thing, right? We all know this. For sure, what's going on here in the first century is that things are distracting them. Distracting them from running the race together as a church. They've started missing Sundays, and I'm sure they all have good excuses. But here's the question to ask yourself about encumbrances. Does this activity, does this event, does this thing cut into my or my family's spiritual growth? And if it does, the coach here is saying, cast it off. Because we're about to hit the long part of the race. And if it's distracting this much now, it's going to become heavy when you start to climb the hills. I like to have someone else look at my life and my schedule. I like to submit, especially my calendar, to someone else. Tell me what I don't see. Tell me what I need to cut out. Tell me what I'm overvaluing at, at the expense of spiritual growth. Let's look at the other one. The other encumbrance is the weight of sin. Now, the text here seems to indicate that that sin is primarily the sin of unbelief. And that would make sense, wouldn't it? I mean, I think we get it. I think these, these Hebrew Christians get it that we know sin is bad, but we have a tendency not to consider doubts as sin. And so what happens? They're running in a pack. They're enduring well. And they start to kind of fall behind a little bit. Well, why is that? Did they not get a good breakfast? Are they not hydrated enough? Or is it because I just don't know that I want to endure the pain? So therefore, I start to doubt whether this is really what? Worth it. You see, you have to kind of peel back. You have to look at your own heart and say, why? And all of us have done this in the past. Why have I pulled myself out of the fire of God's word and the fire of God's people? And what excuse did I use? And many times it's like, is it all really worth it? And I start to take these other things and value them. Or the sin of unbelief creeps up. Remember Peter walking on the water in the Sea of Galilee? He was doing great until what? took his eyes off Christ, and he doubted. I'm not supposed to be able to do this, right? But it's also any sin, any sin that inhibits us from pressing forward. How did Christ teach us to deal with that besetting sin? Go to a therapist. Is that what he says? Uh, slowly change habits, replacing them with better habits. Put up motivational posters. That will no, we didn't say any of that. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, what? Tear it out, throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body 
than for your whole body to go into hell. He says, rid yourself of it. Get serious. Get radical. Cast off the neutrals and kill the sin. Let me say that again. The first step to ridding yourself of weight, the first step of being able to get a couple of extra yards out of us to be able to run the race with endurance is it starts with decisions. It doesn't start with feelings. It doesn't start with emotionalism, okay? It starts with saying, I'm going to look at my calendar. What is inhibiting my spiritual growth? And then it's also looking at a person who's discipling you, your spouse, and saying, what besetting sin do I have? that is stunting my spiritual growth. And you get rid of it. You get rid of it. Because you have to really, really believe that this race is worth it. And that's what had happened. They had just begun to back off. And the time for us to prepare to endure well is now. I'll share with you, with you some things that I've done that have been uncomfortable, but they've been helpful. Um, it's rare for me to accept an opportunity to uh, serve on a board or another ministry outside this church. Those are good things. But I found that they were taking time away from my church family. And so I say no now. And, and I, I say it with confidence. I won't counsel anyone who won't come and be a part of this church, who won't pay it forward and come serve you. You find out real quickly if someone wants counseling, free counseling, if they're unwilling to pay it forward and serve the body of Christ. That's not, being mean, not me being mean. Life is too short for me to waste time with someone who's not interested in either serving others or getting better. And so I will gladly meet with them, but I want you to come and I want you to serve Christ's people. I had to cut it out. I could spend my whole week counseling people who just want to take, take, take. I remember what my dad used to say. Here's another one when he was an elder at Lakeside. When the church calendar comes out January, beginning of the year, plug it in your calendar and then fill everything else around it. Now, I wouldn't say that about every church, but a church like ours that is committed to life-on-life -life discipleship and not programming events, I would say that's a good thing. Because we're only putting what's important there. Have everything else be secondary. What about encumbrances? I remember when uh, my kids were younger, they all enjoyed athletics. And they all wanted to play different sports. <laughs> hey, my kids aren't going to be professional athletes. Reality check, neither are yours. There's hardly anyone out there. I said, no, we're not going to do it. We're going to pick one sport. We're going to go there. Because I knew that I'd be running all over to practices and they'd be scheduling games on Sundays. And I said, no, what's most important is that my kids are part of the body of Christ. Shane's brother, Josh, was over here recently and he is an outstanding soccer player. And he was looking at coming over here to, uh, to get educated and play soccer. And I said, I want, to, I want to change your thinking on something. I want to offer something different. I want you to come over here. I want you to go to school. But I want you to be willing to give up soccer or play just club ball because I want you here because you need to be part of a healthy church so that we can not only teach you what's important in life and in serving Christ, but we can teach you what to look for in a mate. We can walk with you through the whole process. 
All these things that, that we have our blinders on in, in suburban Christianity, we've got to cast off and say, hey, we want to do fun things, but let's not make those neutrals take the place of what's important because tough times are ahead. So let's keep it in balance. And this brings us to the thrust of the passage. Look at our second point. Run with Christ-focused endurance. Verse 1 again, And let us run with endurance, endurance the race that is set before us. As I mentioned, running was the most popular event in the Olympic and Isthmian Games, and an endurance race would begin and finish in the Greek stadium. Stadium comes from the Greek word stadion, which described how long it was. It was 600 Greek feet. And so this was the main event. And the race, the race was called an angano, where we get our word agony. And the thought was this. This was the endurance event. This was the one that would put your body to the test. And if you've run a marathon or even a half marathon, you know, I have no idea because I don't run. But I read here, okay? And I know that the U.S.'s most famous marathon is the what? It's the Boston Marathon, okay? Heartbreak Hill is a well-known series of hills between the 16th and the 19th mile. And it is described as the point where every step is a cry to quit. Even the best runners hate Heartbreak Hill. And yet it is this metaphor that fits the Christian life. What does Paul say? I press on towards the goal of the upward call in Jesus Christ. And so we are to prepare to train to run the Christian life. And the Christian life is not a 40-yard dash, is it? It's a spiritual marathon with heartbreak hills, okay? And it's the kind of thing that we've got to keep putting one foot in front of another. And it's not just gut up type thing. It's not pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. He tells us how to do it in the second part of verse 2. Fixing what? Your eyes on Jesus. Fixing your eyes on Jesus. It's not that you're able to endure because you're intrinsically a better athlete. No, 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 no. We've all been given the gift of faith. Genuine faith will endure. He's talking about how we endure. And we endure by fixing our eyes on Jesus. And if you were a Hellenistic Jew, if you were anyone that lived in the Roman Empire at this time, you knew exactly what he was talking about. Because that stadium was oblong on one side and flat straight on the other. And at the end would sit the judge. And the judge would hold the prize. And the prize was typically a worthless wreath of, of pines or celery or something, you know. All right? But it meant a lot because it meant that you endured, you finished. And every runner knew that in order to win, he fixed his eyes on the judge. And he didn't look to the left or to the right. If you remember Chariots of Fire, Harold Abrahams loses early on to Eric Little. Why? Because he looks at him and he loses a step. Your feet follow your eyes. He loses a step. He says, no, you fix your eyes on Jesus. 
Hebrews chapter 10 makes it clear. He says, let us draw near with a sincere heart. Verse 23, let us hold fast to, a to our confession. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, what we're doing is we are saying, I believe. I believe not only in His person, He is the God of very God who sunk Himself into human flesh. I also believe in His work that He died on the cross in our place. But it doesn't end there either. I also believe in His present work that He is interceding for the church as our great high priest. That the same coach that is down there saying, keep your eyes on me, is also the one that gets on the track, picks us up, and carries us across the finish line. And so when he's telling these Hebrew Christians, fix your eyes on Jesus, run the race with endurance, he's saying you can do it, not in your own strength, but will you do it? Because he will give you the strength. And that's the warp and woof of this passage. Fixing your eyes on Jesus. So here's my application. If your feet follow your eyes, what distracts you? What distracts you in life? What are those things that cause you to look to the right or to the left? Especially when you start to want to say, is this really worth it? I always found that my encumbrances, my distractions were, were uh, good things that I used as excuses to do better things. So especially when I was in business, uh, hey, I want to be the best worker, right? Colossians 3.23. I took pride in doing the best work for my boss. But how do I objectively know what the best work is? Well, I was a salesman. Money was the scorecard. Sales were the scorecard. So if I was doing well, in my mind, I was producing the most, and it was my production that provided for this company. It's not a bad thing, but it was a bad thing when this thing started to take the place of more important things, when I started to be distracted. And I remember praying garbage prayers like this. Lord, would you just give me a good year or help me get this big account so that I can have more time to serve you? Okay, if you've prayed that and you don't need to raise your hand, that's a garbage prayer, okay? That's horrible. Because the Bible says you serve me and trust me that if I provide for the birds of the air, I will surely take care of you. Amen? I was pursuing, in many cases, a perishable wreath like these first century runners. Fixing your eyes on Jesus is pursuing an imperishable wreath. And what is it about our Lord that is worth fixing our eyes upon? Well, it says there in verse 2, He is the author and perfecter of faith. He is the pioneer and completer. He is the initiator and the one who said it is finished on the cross, who completed it. And what's great about that is that this completed faith is also a persevering faith. I quote this verse a lot, but I just I never get tired of it. Philippians 1.6 he who began a good work in you will complete it until, until the day of Christ Jesus. And that's the kind of confidence we need. 
That's the kind of confidence that we need to develop now when, when the persecution is a little maligning of your name, a little bit of slander, a little bit of mockery from your friends. That's what we need now so that we are hitting our stride so that when it gets more difficult, we've already cast off the weight. We've already fixed our eyes on Jesus. We really genuinely believe that this is what we've been called to do. And you're able to maintain the pace. You see, ultimately, Jesus was our forerunner. The ultimate example. Not only was his physical suffering real, but his pain was far more than we will ever experience, for he, he absorbed the wrath of the triune God. I would encourage you, if you weren't here around Christmas time, I spent time on Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, on this singular phrase, for the joy set before him. And if you'll go back and listen to that sermon, what we learned is that as Christ was driven by filling, fulfilling the will of God and bringing Him glory, that joy pleasing God, that as Christ was driven by that, so we can be driven by Christ's joy. We can find joy in the same. He is the ultimate exampler, exampler and enabler, if I could say that, make up a word. He despised the shame, killing death, and basically what he is asking to, us to do here is to run the race with endurance, watch this, understanding that there's really no consequences of enduring. Death has no sting. There is the death of death. The race has been won. It's like a relay race where Christ has already crossed the finish line. We're just simply called to follow in his footsteps. It's done. What's the worst thing that can happen? What did Justin Martyr say to us last week? Hey, they can kill you, but they can't hurt you. That's the worst thing. So our eyes are to be focused on the pioneer of our faith and the completer of our faith, one who is not only the example, but the enabler. But how do we remember Christ's example? When we fix our eyes on Him, certainly we know that He will carry us through. But how do we practically get through the pain? Okay? I need this. When you start to get buffeted, how do you get through the pain? Look at verse 3. It says, For consider Him. Our third point is, Renumerate on Christ's example. Renumerate. For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now, I use that word renumerate rather than remember for a reason. One, because it sounds like something my old Aunt Veda would say, and I like it. You won't forget renumerate, all right? But renumerate is actually an accountant's term. It means to reckon up and consider, to figure it out, to, to calculate, to go over the numbers, to look at it closely, and then compare it. And the picture is this. Are times tough? Yes. Were times tough for them? Yes. Are times going to get tough for us? Yes. Analyze it, reckon it, 
compared to Christ's sufferings. Do they compare? Not even close. Not even close. Jordan, I like to say to each other, we don't have problems in comparison to what Christ has done, to what Christ has suffered. And it says he endured them. It doesn't describe a patience that begrudgingly accepts, oh, this is terrible. I really hate this. I'm going to just kind of be an Eeyore. Has Winnie the Pooh been canceled yet? Okay. I can't remember. Eeyore. What was Eeyore like? Oh, how's it going today? Oh, it's really terrible. That's not the kind of bearing up under that begrudgingly accepts. No, no, no. It's one that masters it that delightfully receives it, knowing that it first passed before God's throne before it ever came to you. That God has said, this is what Rod can handle. In fact, this is what will strengthen his faith. Go for it. He's not the author of evil, but he allows it. He ordains it. And it says that we are to consider him who has endured all this, our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's just the right thing to do? Look at the compassion in this verse. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I was talking to a fellow recently. We were talking world religions. And I was explaining how Christianity is different than all the other world religions. Primarily because all the other world religions are man is basically good and he is attaining to a higher level, a nirvana, eternal life, blah, 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 a relationship with God. Whereas Christianity is man is totally depraved, had no way of reaching God, but God reached down and made it possible. But you know what's interesting about all that is understanding that it is God who also carries us through. And he doesn't just carry us through through just the justification part. You are made righteous. But he carries us through compassionately. He cares. It's right here, God's word. I want you to do this. Why? Because it's the right thing. He could say that, but he says, because I don't want you to grow weary. I don't want you to grow weary and lose heart. Do you know that's one word in the Greek? And it was used in classical Greek outside of the Bible to describe an Olympian who fell down on the track and quit. I don't want you to be like those who fall and quit. Not because they tripped, but because they gave up. They grew weary. Our Lord cares. Don't miss that. He doesn't just say, look at Jesus and realize you're never going to suffer that much. He says, look at Jesus and realize You're not only not going to suffer that much, and I want you to consider it because I care for you. I really, really don't want you to grow weary and lose heart. And he says, think about what Christ endured. Rejection, slander, betrayal, torture, crucifixion. Being maligned by his own family. So I want to get practical here with you. We've got a coach here who's given us techniques for success. You may not be weary and losing heart yet, but I imagine there will come a time when we're tempted. Maybe you're already that way. 
So what does it mean to endure well? What does it mean to run the race with endurance? Think about it this way. There was a time when the Lord saved you, and you joined the race with your fellow believers, and you loved it. It was great. You're with the bride of Christ. You're learning. You're fellowshipping. Spending time. You're doing ministry. You're praising the author of our salvation. And then one day the honeymoon was over. One day someone disappointed you. Maybe it was someone, maybe it was one of your pastors or elders. Maybe it was a good friend. Maybe it was persecution from without. Maybe it was persecution from within. Whatever it was, it kind of jolted you. Now you've heard of persecution in South Sudan, but but now all of a sudden, even though this is mild, it kind of feels personal. Maybe you started to notice it as a college student with your atheistic professor mocks you in front of the whole class or makes you do a particular assignment that takes you dangerously close to compromising your values. Maybe it's your peers. Maybe you are starting to feel a little bit of persecution in the workplace. Maybe you're being mocked because you're not uh, becoming an ally, which is a new word. You're not being a cheerleader to the things that God considers evil. And those are just slight pressures, but it's causing you to say, I'm not, I'm not so happy about this anymore. Is everyone kind of feeling that? If that's where you are, then we need to take the coach's instruction and start to run harder. We need to get rid of the weight and the encumbrances. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus because I want to share with you what's coming. And I might be wrong, but I'm not going to be that wrong about it. So can we just get practical here? Can we just end with some really, really things that are, that are going to happen and probably within the next few years? We'll start small. I think everyone agrees that persecution here in the good old U.S. of A. is going to take the forms of the twin adversaries of culture and government. To put another way, we're going to feel both the mockery and reality of pain from both social pressure and authoritarian constraint. Everyone now agrees that the Bible's view of sexuality is archaic. Therefore, if you as a church don't, A, quit teaching this, B, be willing to hire unbelievers, or C, be willing to perform same-sex marriages, you will pay the price. You are choosing to no longer be subsidized by the U.S. government. And you're like, well, we're a church. We're not subsidized by the U.S. government. Well, remember, Satan is the father of lies. Here's how it's going to go. But actually, you are subsidized by the U.S. government. It's called a charitable contribution. And if you do not comply with the aforementioned laws, whatever you want to call them, you will lose this. Reality, let me tell you how this is going to hurt. And it's not a big deal, but it's the next level of persecution. Based on an average salary in here, it's going to cost you an extra $2,500 to $3,000 a year if you remain faithful to continue to support your church. That kind of stings a little bit. But hey, we're a faithful congregation. We'll make it beyond that. I got this. I'm going to keep running with endurance. Let me tell you the other things coming down the pike. We're seeing it on the East Coast. I saw it two years ago with NGOs, non-governmental organizations. It's coming this way. It's coming by way of diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
Now, a lot of us will just hold our nose, go to the class, and just get past it. No problem, right? The new thing is, is that you then now need to sign that you agree with this philosophy and that you will be an ally of these particular behaviors. Now it starts to sting. Now I kind of, I don't mind losing the tax deduction, right? This starts to hurt a little more. Well, the one thing to remember here is that you cannot waver in your ambassadorship of the gospel. You cannot say you believe something that is contrary to Scripture. But we're also going to walk with you through this. We're going to run the race as a pack, and we're going to say, don't quit. You make sure they fire you. Number two, we assure you that no one in this church will ever go hungry. Number three, we're going to equip you to not have to work for the man in many cases and give you a new career and train you in other ways. Let me give you another one. And I don't know what order these things are coming in, but I think everyone agrees that these are coming. Look at Canada, look at Italy, look at Australia, look at New Zealand. They're already there. And they've been ramped up during COVID. Here's another one. Your church, because of lockdowns or other laws, is now closed by the government temporarily for the greater good. That's how it's usually presented. You are now threatened with fines and even jail time, i.e. see Canada, if you violate this. What does it mean to run the race with endurance? Well, we don't have to really figure that out because the Chinese church has been doing it for decades. What do you do? You say, oh, I'm going to honor God over men. And we start to meet in secret. And we risk. And we endure. I could go on, but my purpose is to give you real-life potential examples that are at our doorstep. I hope we don't see them for another 10 or 15 years. I think we're going to see them sooner than that. So we got to start being willing to take the, the, the blows right now and run the race with endurance so that when these things hit, when they're at our front door, we're ready to deal with them. Delightfully, not angrily, but delightfully, smartly. And I trust that this church will be prepared, not because we are smarter or more holy, more righteous than anyone else, but simply because we've been obedient to listen to our spiritual coach and let him shape us so that we can run the race with endurance. Amen.